Hi, I'm Dr. Shana. I'm a mental health counselor, educator, and advocate, and I'd like to wish you a warm welcome to the Mental Wellness Practice. This is a place for you to learn about mental health, including key statistics, tips, and skills to help you cultivate mental well-being for yourself and others. I really hope that you're able to take away practical information from this episode and to use that to plant seeds for the future. If you appreciate what you hear, follow, like, leave a comment, or share this episode with a loved one. For more free educational content, connect on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Shana. You can also check out the show notes for additional resources, including the best-selling self-love workbook and the newly released Designing Healthy Boundaries. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and if you're struggling with a mental health concern, please seek professional help. If you have any further questions, you're always welcome to contact me at drshana.com. Number one, we need to know what it is. This happens a lot when it comes to mental health. The stigma around it means that we're not directly discussing it. So we kind of grab these piecemealed ideas about what a present concern is. In this case, we're talking about anxiety, but we do the same thing when it goes to, you know, um, depression or trauma or any other key mental health concern. We don't actually pay attention to what it is. And sometimes we might be on the right track, sure. But I've seen a lot of people make the mistake of not really knowing what it is that they're talking about. And of course, then you're off on bad footing to begin with. Now, for the purpose of this episode, there are lots of ways to define anxiety. I'm using a general diagnostic criteria, but I'm not going to get too specific because I don't want to encourage self-diagnosis. So for the purpose of our time together, and perhaps a definition that you can use to carry you forward and trying to be a little bit more concrete about what exactly is anxiety, especially disordered anxiety, it's an intense excessive and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations that occurs more often than not over a period of time. Again, this might sound general because it is, I'm actually basing it off of the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, but also there are more specific renditions of anxiety and across cultures and countries, this may vary. But I think even looking at some of these key words can help us clarify, you know, thinking intense, excessive, persistent, right? So it's not necessarily something that affects you deeply one day and then you don't experience it for weeks to come. And anxiety at the diagnostic level is usually what we recognize as causing an issue or several issues and discomfort over a period of time. Yes, there are more specific situations like social anxiety, panic disorder, specific phobias, but I'm not going too deep into those. If those are something you're, if those are what you are curious about, good for you being curious about them. And please seek a mental health professional to help you better understand those. Number two, we need to know that it's natural. We all have anxiety or anxious responses to some extent. And actually I would go the extra mile to say we all should have it to a certain level. It's pretty inherent in what makes us human. 
anxiety is a normal biological response to danger. So when I think about this, to make it clear, I like to think about early humans. So don't think about our current society, go way back. And in that time, anxiety was undoubtedly a life-saving skill, right? I usually use this image of early humans out on the savannah trying to get safety so they can rest for the evening. And if they were to see some sort of predator, right, a lion, what have you, see that predator, that response that quickly permeates over the body, that is what anxiety looks like in that moment. Having that response the next day, even when there isn't a predator to be seen, that's the appropriate response, right? Like here, there are predators. In order to save my life, I need to be cognizant of, alert about this imminent danger. So some of you may be thinking, okay, well, I'm really fortunate to have the privilege to not have to worry about direct predators and I don't live on the savannah, et cetera, et cetera. And I get that. But here's the thing. Our bodies haven't really adapted to the shift in time and context. So our bodies are still kind of programmed and wired to protect ourselves from that. That's what kept the human race alive, really. So even if you are not in a life or death situation in the present moment, your body may not recognize that truth. So things that are perceived as a threat could become easily paved towards anxiety, especially if unchecked, could become disordered anxiety. But I think it's really freeing to realize that's actually what's supposed to happen to a certain extent. And I know that wording might not sit really well with everyone, like supposed to, we're all supposed to be anxious, you know, panicky all over the place. That's not what I mean. It's about if our body detects a threat to realize there's a threat and we must then be alert about it. That's actually how it's supposed to be. It's just not clear programming, right? It's very general. It's very vague. So sure, we can make misinterpretations over time. But that's how it's supposed to be. And I think this can be really freeing for folks to realize because I think within the realm of mental health stigma, folks who are living with anxiety often feel like odd or weird. It's like, hmm, that's actually how we're supposed to function. Number three, anxiety looks different from person to person. So when you think about anxiety, there may be a really stereotypical image that comes to mind for you. And usually that tends to align with some general obvious signs like irritability, agitation, restlessness, someone being jittery, maybe having some trouble sleeping or concentrating, seeing observed sweating or trouble breathing. And from the personal standpoint, maybe you can sense like tension and restriction in the body. These are common signs, but they're also general signs. Sometimes you won't actually see a darn thing. And that's a key aspect that I think gets missed a lot with anxiety. So anxiety and its most overt, sometimes more intense forms are easier to spot. But anxiety in their lesser forms, especially before it gets to that diagnostic level, 
a lot of times we can't see it or folks mask it. A lot of people are functional with anxiety. And as a side note, people can be fun the common term of functional fill in the blank diagnosis doesn't mean that they're living the healthiest of lives, but they're getting by in a way that you don't realize that they're living with this hidden concern, sometimes hidden disability. So something to think about is, yes, if you want to be on alert and be a wonderful advocate for your loved ones, especially if you're not in that one in three statistic, then that's great to look for these signs, but also keep with you the humble reminder that you might not see anything and looking for signs as if looking for evidence may cause you to overlook anxiety in and of itself. Number four, we respond differently. One of the reasons that anxiety looks different from person to person is because how we respond tends to differ from person to person. Maybe you've heard of fight or flight, and those are distinct responses to anxiety. This can all trace back to that whole early human example I gave before. How do we respond when a threat is detected? So if we think about that predator detected on the savanna again, do you a run for dear life book it don't even consider anything it just detect it i am out of here i need to save my life b grab a weapon try to make a plan try to pounce ward it off what have you c stay still silent and hope that nothing is detected yourself what's around you just camouflage or D, try to give in. Now, this one's a little hard to use that early human example, but if we're thinking about modern day survival threats, like an abusive partner, that might be someone giving into a, an abusive to partner, being kind to an abusive partner, trying to appease an abusive partner. You might have one of these typical response styles, but it also can vary per context. So. Let's make sure we're tracking this properly. First of all, these are four distinct signs that are recognized when it comes to anxiety. They're common responses to threats. Maybe at this moment you've reflected through A through D and you realize, okay, I am one of these over the other. But you might also realize that if you are operating from one, then you might start to conceptualize that anxiety looks like that, right? So I'll use A. That's the flea. So if you are the type of person who in face of an imminent threat, you avoid, you run away, you isolate, you compartmentalize, you minimize, then you might think, well, that's what anxiety looks like, right? That's what it looks like for me. So therefore it might look like for other people. And that might be true for some folks, but again, we respond differently. So folks who are directly addressing it or folks who are not doing anything at all, you might think they're not anxious because they're not responding how I respond when I'm anxious, but actually these are different and equally valid responses to anxiety. And again, some of this can be like how you, you know, like a personality test, like which one are you when you might fit into sometimes easily one of these boxes. And many times it varies per context. So. For example, if you feel more adept at something, maybe 
before you developed those skills, like say it's say public speaking, let's look at that. And let's think of more of like a social related anxiety. Well, before you take a class on public speaking and receive some coaching and mentorship, or maybe even therapy, you might just be darn right scared, down, darn right, down, right, darn, you know, both scared. Okay. Fearful of what's to come. You're not even sure you just get up there and you might freeze, right? Perhaps this is all too real for some of you yet over time, when you experience that support and that coaching and that informational experience that helps you feel more prepared to speak publicly, then you might not have that freeze response anymore. Maybe you move into more of like a fight response instead. So it can change. So our responses look different from person to person. And even our responses personally can change per context or over time. Number five, it helps to look for the fear. A lot of folks are so consumed by their anxiety that they want nothing to do with it. They prefer to not talk about it and tend to avoid it. Sometimes this gets so far out of hand that the person doesn't even realize what they're fearful of anymore. And even though there may be some surface level guesses, the root fear is often too intimidating to consider, much less to make space for. But the reality is that that's actually a big part of working through anxiety. So we need to consider what are you really scared of? Again, this is deep. I know it's an existential question that many times we don't want to speak about and tend to avoid. It can feel intimate and intrusive. And I, I definitely get that. Knowing someone's deepest fears can tell you a lot about a person. For some, that helps to be seen, validated, supportive, and love. Supported. Supportive. Hey, maybe when that happens, they're also supportive. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> there are, you could see how that makes the way for healing, but for others, it's too vulnerable, uncomfortable, and threatening. Some people get in this in-between zone that they know they need help for anxiety and it still is too intimidating to dig deep and medication becomes the choice. And I definitely think that any help is better than no help at all. But the truth is that even with medication, it's really hard to truly handle and address anxiety if you're not looking at what caused or is causing it in the first place. So again, not anti-medication, but the approach of using medication, not just for anxiety, but mental health at large without doing the cognitive, emotional, potential social parts of that that's kind of getting things to a certain level, but it's not the all encompassing healthiest way to address it. If you're living with anxiety, it's important to find safe spaces that you can explore the layers of your fears. And if you're trying to support someone with anxiety, maybe you're comfortable exploring it with them and they're willing to open up to you. But remember, you're not a mental health professional, or at least some of you aren't. So that's not your responsibility. And here's the thing, even if you are a mental health professional, that still means that friends and loved ones are coming to you. And that is not your ethical responsibility. It's actually within your ethical limits. 
So maybe you can point someone who's seeking help and needs the space to safely explore their fears to a professional who can help. Number six, anxiety can be helpful. Anxiety can be challenging, yet in some instances, it can actually be helpful. If you've ever felt the chest compressing burden of anxiety, I know it can be really hard to hear this. I know that for a past version of me, I would have probably rolled my eyes, stopped listening, or probably shared some colorful language at the idea of that. You know, like, how dare you suggest this when I am struggling? I, I relate to that deeply. But know that over time, if we're actually able to go through it, not around it, not suppress it, through it, we can actually harness our awareness of what anxiety is, what we fear, and what we can manage. And it can actually help us to motivate ourselves to be more intentional about our actions. Now, most people don't get to tap into this superpower because we're too darn scared of looking at the fear. And again, I want to validate that. It is intimidating, and most of us don't have the resources or the support to do that. And that's a huge problem, and that's why therapy is so important. Now, also on the other side of things here, I want to recognize that anxiety can be helpful, yes, but sometimes people are not only able to tap into that superpower. You know, you think about, <laughs> I'm trying to think about pretty much, about, uh, no, mm -hmm. thinking about superheroes and how many times when they realize they have their power, or maybe this actually happens with villains. I don't know. If you have that superhero example come to mind, if you are into comics and your mind is serving you better than mine is right now, please let me know what example can go here. But I'm thinking a lot of times people recognize that they have this power and then it gets harvested so much that it becomes to a fault. And yeah, as with everything else, anxiety can be helpful, but it needs to be balanced. It's not meant to be a silver lining, but the utilization of the helpfulness that can energize and motivate you with anxiety can become really perfectionistic for one. So it's, yes, I can produce at this level because I'm fearful of X, Y, Z, and that's giving me a lot of energy to complete A, B, and C. However, that then causes an adjustment of expectations, standards, etc., and you can see how that then leads down this dangerous path towards perfectionism. It can also become obsessive because the feeling, that energy within anxiety, once it's harnessed, it can feel good to utilize in a more positive way. It's empowering. Um, and who doesn't want to feel more empowered than feeling like a panicking mess, right? I, so it can create obsessiveness. So as with anything else, it's important to recognize that anxiety can be helpful, yet we want to be able to maintain our self-awareness and hone it so it doesn't become toleterous on the opposite end of the spectrum as well. Number seven, don't ridicule the fear. We can be quick to minimize, compartmentalize, and rationalize our anxieties. It's even a common approach in therapy. Forget outside of it. 
So we tend to want to find what the fear is and highlight, especially if it's a quote, irrational fear and then confront it, right? So this fear makes no sense. So therefore all your anxiety has no ground to stand on. This does work to a certain extent. It's helped lots of folks, but I have to tell you, I've been working with folks with anxiety and living with anxiety for decades now. And I notice that especially in my work, because I do long-term mental health treatment, that the, you know, address the fear and kind of ridicule it and shame it and be like, ha, huh, that's silly. Look, it makes no sense. So therefore your anxiety is silly and just get rid of it. That method can be short-lived, but it can resurface or even evolve. And something to think about is that what is seen at a more surface level as an irrational fear can actually be tethered to something that's deeper. But sometimes we're so quick to use the method of dismissing this quote unquote irrational fear that we don't get to do the deeper work or excavation to actually handle the deeper anxiety. So it's a band-aid to something that many times is something deeper. Not to mention, sometimes it's hard to say that something is truly irrational. You know, I'm thinking a few years ago, I heard a lot of people saying that if they went outside, they would get sick and that they might experience, you know, a fatal loss from that, whether it's their own or whether it's someone they love or several people they love. And I have to tell you in that zone, working with clients, it was really hard to say that that was irrational. Now it does fit a lot of what we use as unhealthy thinking patterns or unhelpful thinking patterns or irrational thinking patterns. It's cognitive distortions. There's so many ways we call it in the counseling and psych realm. You know, oh, you're jumping to conclusions. You're fortune telling. You're using black and white thinking. And sure, it checks those boxes, but also it was a really valid fear based on the context, right? So sometimes our rational, irrational fears can sound very irrational, but it might actually be pretty contextual. And it's important to have the space to explore that versus just immediately dismissing it. So we need to sit with the fear, make space for it. Doesn't mean that we need to love it, but learning about the fear can surely help us know how to manage it. Number eight, our thoughts matter. For one, our thoughts can become statements. And I mentioned earlier that anxiety looks different from person to person. And sometimes you may not see it look like anything at all. But instead of looking for visible signs, if you are actively listening, you might hear someone's inner thoughts. Sometimes as a random statement, it might sound like a hyperbole, like I won't be able to rest until I finish this project, or I can't go to that event, no one likes me there. It might sound like a random statement, maybe a one-off, but those are someone's inner thoughts that can serve as a sign for anxiety. So we want to be able to pay attention to what other people are thinking to cue into their anxiety. 
Also, when we're digging deeper and we want to look at the root fear or root fears, we need to look at the supporting thoughts. Those let us know about beliefs. So for example, if someone were to say, I have to go to med school or my parents will disown me, which I cannot tell you the amount of times I've heard that statement. This can tell us about the person's beliefs and maybe even about more than one person's beliefs. It might be beliefs about career, beliefs about their parents, belief about their family, belief about culture, beliefs about what other people believe. And all of that, whether we know those for sure or not, can point the direction towards what the underlying fear or fears are. And then finally, we were talking about the concept of irrational fears. And while we do not want to immediately dismiss fears, being able to make that distinction between what is a healthy and unhealthy thought can be really powerful. So in my work, this is a personal preference, I don't spend a ton of time making the distinction between what's rational and irrational. And I think the pandemic changed me forever that I, who knows if I ever will. I'm not saying that we don't have irrational thoughts. I know I have my own from time to time, but sometimes I've found it, not sometimes, most times, almost every time, I find it helpful to think about it more as healthy or unhealthy. So is that thought helping in any way? Is that thought feeding the fear? Is that thought showing you the fear? Is that thought warning you? What is the thought doing? And that distinction can be really helpful. Number nine, we cope differently. So if you're tracking, you realize that anxiety looks different from person to person. We respond differently and you guessed it, how we heal can differ too. So treatment for anxiety from person to person will vary. There are some typical ways though, obviously I'm here to talk to you about counseling. There are short-term methods and there are long-term methods. There's also the use of substance and sometimes through medication, there's that substance and there's a blend of the two therapy and substance. And some people avoid and pretend it isn't there. And I strongly advise against this method. Um, but to a certain extent, I acknowledge that with very minimal anxiety, maybe that can work. And you can hear the force in my voice because it hurts me to even say those words. Um, because what I usually notice is if you're in that zone, that avoiding or pretending it's not a problem works, that's usually the zone that proactively working on anxiety is the most possible because you're doing well enough, you're functioning enough and you're balanced or somewhat balanced or slightly off kilter. And unfortunately, a lot of people use that zone to say, it's not that big of a deal. And what happens is they push it down and it's only a matter of time before it comes roaring its head and catching you off guard. So again, I know that some people take that method and I understand that the lack of resources and access definitely contributes to that. And all of that breaks my heart because Inevitably, I see that usually it comes back up. So 
Anxiety looks different for all of us. We respond differently, we heal differently. Those are some typical methods and some general methods of coping that tends to work from person to person, that if you are living with anxiety, these are some things that I think you should try to lean into is exploring the fear in a safe professional space that helps to learn triggers related to anxiety. It's just such an important part of the process. Also developing coping skills to help you regulate. I know a lot of times I have people come to counseling when they are experiencing intense anxiety, you know, on a scale of one to 10, eight or higher. Um, usually this is the type of situation that when I ask one to 10, they're like 20, a hundred. And that I, I hear that. And like I mentioned, that means that they're already in a zone that it's well evolved or devolved, I guess, depends on the way you want to look at it. But coping skills to regulate are best use, of course, at any part in the scale, but like earlier anxiety, when we're nervous, when we're worried, when we're concerned, that more like zero to three realm of ang anxiousness, that regulation is key. Yet I do encourage folks to consider the wider realm of that. And we'll come back around to that for our activity in a little bit. It's also really helpful to engage in self-care. Um, we addressed this in season one. So if you are wanting to learn all about self-care, I would head back there. And I would emphasize that for anxiety, I know I'm starting like a broken record now. It is not just about being reactive, but it's coping proactively as well. Before the trigger comes up, knowing that our triggers will occur over time. They're not just going to disappear. And then finally, community support. So, you know, we started out this episode kind of talking about this episode is for folks who are living with anxiety. And it's also for the folks who aren't, who are, you know, fortunate to not and can be a mental health advocate for those who are. So providing community support for loved ones who are living with anxiety is huge. And for folks who are living with anxiety, finding professional help, you know, that's always going to be my go-to suggestion, but also finding friends who you can listen, who will listen to you actively without judgment. Some of us have access to that and I wouldn't sleep on it. And then finally, support groups. This is a nice blend of the professional support because usually it's led by a trained facilitator and hearing other people's examples. So, you know, if you have a friend who's really wonderful and caring but doesn't live with anxiety, that can help to a certain extent. But there's something really special and therapeutic about hearing about others in similar journeys too. Number 10, last but not least, and I was trying to think, you know, I do believe that all 10 of these are so important, so I don't want to pick favorites, but if there's something that sticks with you, I want it to be this one. So number 10, something that you really need to know about anxiety is that someone living with anxiety can live a happy, healthy life. I know that if you're living with anxiety, you already know how hard it is. And maybe you've wondered if it ever gets better. Living with anxiety doesn't mean that you can't ever be calm, valued, helpful, loving, or happy. When you're making space for your truth, 
you are able to better understand, work through and heal your anxiety. And absolutely, you can access happiness and a healthy life. So in our time together, we've been able to explore 10 key things that I believe everyone needs to know about anxiety, especially if we're wanting to empower ourselves to live and heal through anxiety or empower a loved one. Now, applying any of those things is already pretty practical, so that can be a wonderful start. Yet I want to also offer you an activity. It's one of my favorite, most used interventions. And I was even using a little bit throughout our time as we were going through some of the different 10 tips, and that's scaling. I want you to think about what anxiety looks like for you on a scale of one to 10. And yes, I want you to think about yourself. Even if you're in that supportive role right now, I want you to lean into you. So we're not doing all this guessing and mind reading. What does anxiety look for you? look like for you if you are between a one and three and how does that differ if you are a little bit higher on the scale like seven think about that broadly i like to write this down i think it's really helpful i use more of like a I, a number line approach vertical horizontal diagonal do whatever suits you but as you explore the differences at each number Think about what thoughts you have across that spectrum and how do your thoughts differ from the lower end to the higher end? What about the emotions? What about the behaviors? If you zoom in, can you see what it looks like at each level and what the difference is? The big aspect of this is of course to raise self-awareness. It's really helpful to even know how it differs and how it looks for each and every one of us. Cause like I mentioned, it looks different because we respond different and we cope differently. So that's that last leg that I wanted to add on is coping. What type of coping can you access for your anxiety when you are at a three and what type of coping can you access when you're at an eight? And maybe you don't know the answer to that yet. But I do hope that if you spend the time working on your mental health, practicing mental wellness, that you'll be able to know how you can cope throughout that spectrum. And if you're struggling with this question, please seek professional help. Hi, I'm Dr. Shana. I'm a mental health counselor, educator, and advocate, and I'd like to wish you a warm welcome to the mental wellness practice. This is a place for you to learn about mental health, including key statistics, tips, and skills to help you cultivate mental well-being for yourself and others. I really hope that you're able to take away practical information from this episode and to use that to plant seeds for the future. If you appreciate what you hear, follow, like, leave a comment, or share this episode with a loved one. For more free educational content, connect on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Shana. You can also check out the show notes for additional resources, including the best-selling self-love workbook and the newly released Designing Healthy Boundaries. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only. And if you're struggling with a mental health concern, please seek professional help. If you have any further questions, you're always welcome to contact me at drshana.com.